Well, good morning. For those that don't know me, my name is Jake, and I serve on staff here at Village as the youth director, and I just want to welcome you all here this morning, and also just to say I am so thankful for every opportunity that I get to preach uh, here on Sunday mornings. If you're a guest with us or, or even with our student ministry, we have 6th to 12th grade. If you didn't know, this meets on Sunday nights, and we meet every Sunday night from 6.30 to 8. I love our student ministry. We have a great time, and so I want to invite you out personally, if you're not involved in our student ministry, to come out and check out what it's like on Sunday nights. We're not actually meeting this tonight, but our, Sunday, or our summer kickoff is next Sunday, and I want to invite you out to that. If you're a student and you're like, I don't want to do that, I have an ice cream, or ice cream truck coming. So just, just know that that's there. Even if you don't want anything else, you can come for that and it'll be a good time. The other thing I wanted to do this morning was to thank you all. Uh, over the past few months, I have asked you to buy a lot of things and do a lot of things for our student ministry. I've asked you to buy raffle tickets. I've asked you to uh, buy donuts. Some of y'all bought a little too many, I think, but that's okay. I'll take it. Uh, some of y'all, I asked you to buy uh, hot dogs and cheeseburgers for the mission of Jesus. And let me tell you, this year was unlike any year that we've ever had uh, for our camp and our student ministry. Typically what happens is parents will pay a deposit and then I'll send them an email to let them know after all of our fundraising, how much they have left. And typically we only have about six students who have their camp fully paid for. But this year I got to send that email that said, camp is paid in full, you owe nothing else to 24 parents, which is amazing. So thank you all so much for your investment in Village Students. It was a huge blessing for us. And I can just tell you, after taking students to camp for years, that every single year, and I mean every year that I take students to camp, some will walk in without a relationship with Jesus, and they walk away from that week as a son or daughter of the living God. And so thank you all so much for your investment in us. But this morning, I want us to look at James 1. And we're going to take a break from the Matthew series this morning. And this book of James is something that I hope that you have in your life as well. It's one of those books that I've been diving into uh, better or more this year than I ever have before. That it's a book that I'm reading along with other Bible reading to try to know God's word even more. And so when I'm reading through this, this passage has stood out to me. And it deals with something that we are going to struggle with as Christians when it comes to our walk with God. And that's trials and temptations. And this morning, as we look into God's word, I want us to answer a few questions. The first is, what do we do when we face trials in our life? What do you do when life doesn't go the way you think it should go? Second, is God the source of our temptation? Or is it something outside of us? What is the reason that we are tempted? And third, what do we do when life throws us a curveball and it feels as though our faith is under siege? How do we deal with that? And friends, I can tell you that I am so thankful that God's word does not leave us without answers to these questions. That God's word is clear and he tells us what we need to do. And so this morning, I hope that we can look at this passage together and grow in our faith. James 1 verse 12 through 18 says this. It says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. 
Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Point number one this morning, endure trials with eternity in mind. Endure trials with eternity in mind. You see, earlier in James, he speaks of how we deal with trials and that we need to remain steadfast. James says in James 1, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, James in this previous verse is encouraging believers to stand firm under trial because it's going to produce in them this steadfastness. And that word steadfastness really just means perseverance in your life, that you will persevere in your walk with Jesus through trials. Now, trials are difficult situations that God allows into our lives with the purpose to grow our faith and make us persevere regardless of what may happen in our life. And when it comes to scripture, we see a lot of accounts of people who did this faithfully, but the one that stands out to me is Joseph in Genesis. You see, Joseph had dreams that God was going to do a miraculous work in his life, that he was gonna actually make him rule over his brothers. Now, naturally, his brothers did not like that, but they planned to kill him. But instead of doing that, they sold him into slavery. Joseph works through that and he's faithful in that and he gets a position only for that to be taken away from him under false accusation. While he's in prison, he interprets dreams of a few prisoners who they say they're going to tell the Pharaoh that what he did for them, but guess what happened? He didn't, they didn't. And so Joseph remains in jail. Finally, Pharaoh gets a vision and he can't figure out what it is. And Joseph interprets it for him and and he lets Joseph out of prison but he doesn't just let him out of prison. He actually puts him over all of Egypt. He's second in command. And what Joseph does is because he interpreted that dream, it saved Egypt from famine and the world was coming to them for food. Included in that were his brothers who ended up coming to him and bowing before him and begging for mercy. Only for Joseph to reveal to them who he was. And Joseph invites his whole family to come and live with them there and provide for them. Joseph's dad ultimately dies, and when he dies, his brothers are worried. His brothers are worried because they think the only reason he has not unleashed his fury on them is because their father was alive. But Joseph, in the story, Genesis 50, 20 through 21, he says this to his brothers. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Friends, what a testament that is of a life marked by steadfast belief in God. That Joseph had so many things happen in his life, but yet he remained with God. He trusted God to the point where he looks at his brothers and he says, you meant evil for me, but God meant it for good. And I'm thankful it happened because people were saved because of it. Also on top of that, I'm gonna provide for you and your family. Friends, that's a life that's marked by God. And I hope it's something that we all want to attain to as well. You see, there was a purpose to Joseph's struggle and he remained firm in his faith. 
And so it's the same for us. Being steadfast means that the Christian will not sway when the storms of life come. Instead, the Christian does what Charles Spurgeon, the famous preacher, once said. He said, I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. You see, in that quote, what Spurgeon is telling us is when you build your life on the gospel of Jesus, trials are not something that you look to sadly, but it's something you look to as another opportunity for you to worship Jesus. And that changes the way that we look at them entirely. And we do this because our life is found on the solid foundation of Jesus. And he says this himself in Matthew 7. It says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Friends, I want you to notice something in that passage. God does not say that the storms will not come. In fact, he says the storms will come. But the difference is this man built his house on the rock, which would be us putting our faith in Jesus. That if we put our faith in Jesus and have him as our solid foundation of our life, that when the storms come, when the trials come, when the pressure's on, our house will not fall because we have founded our faith on the solid rock of our king. So to be steadfast is to be truly immovable regardless of what happens in your life. Friends, let me tell you, trials will come into your life and a lot of them will come without warning. Many of us are going through a couple of them right now. First one's gas being $20 a gallon. That's a trial, okay? For those of you that have Ford F-350s, I feel sorry for you and I'm praying for you. But there's more to it than even that, right? Some of us are struggling to find baby formula. That's a problem and that's a trial. Some of us are struggling with broken relationships, physical illnesses, financial struggles, the death of loved ones. And you see, our world will look at all of these things and they will simply just say, how meaningless. What is the purpose of all these things? But as Christians, we have a different answer to them. We would say that none of these fall wasted, that even through the most difficult circumstances of our life, God will use these things ultimately for his glory and our good. But if you notice in the passage, James shows us what the ultimate result of this steadfastness will be. You see, ultimately, it doesn't just end in this life. Although I wanna encourage you to live a life that's marked by steadfastness. That if you live a life that's marked by constantly believing in God, constantly believing that he's gonna do what he said he will, and that you live that out, the world will look at you and wonder what's different about you that you will be able to share the gospel of Jesus by the way you live your life and have opportunities to share his good news and advance his mission. And friends, if you become a steadfast person, you will glorify God. But what I love about this passage is that it doesn't end here on this earth. The ultimate goal here is what James says is the crown of life. Now, when we hear th- something about a crown, the image that you immediately got in your head, I'm sure, is of a king or a queen that has a huge crown with a lot of jewels. It's very bright when you look at it. And you have this image in your head of what a crown looks like. What you have to understand is back in biblical days, that wasn't necessarily the crown that they had in mind. You see, Paul actually uses this analogy as well in 1 Corinthians 9 regarding a runner who is the victor of a race that when he had run the race and he had won the race, he got up on the pedestal and they would place a crown on his head. But this crown looked more like a wreath than what we would think of as a crown. 
And what this signified was that he ran the race well. And so James in this passage is encouraging Christians to keep eternity in mind when we're under trial. One thing I've noticed is that this life is so short in comparison to eternity. It's so short compared to the eternity and the glory that awaits us for those of us that believe in Jesus as Lord. And this is the truth that encourages us when we're in the midst of a trial, that this is not the end. That even if you are in a trial right now, it doesn't end here. That if you remain steadfast, you will have a relationship with Jesus that's flourishing while you're on this earth, only to enter into an eternity where you will be with him face to face forever. So friends, if you're going through trials right now, I encourage you to look at them and compare them to eternity. That this moment is so small in light of the eternity that awaits for us as Christians. Therefore, I choose every day to live with eternity in mind. That because of my faith in Jesus, there's coming a day when I'll see my king face to face. That all of this suffering and all of these trials will be done. That my life on this earth has ended and I will be with him forever. But I do wanna hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. But in that, I want him to be able to say that I was steadfast, that I was immovable when it came to this world and that I just get to enter into the joy of him forever in that moment. And you see, friend, on that day is the day that you receive the crown of life that James promises here. But notice that that crown ultimately is not because of anything that you did, because on your own, you would never be able to attain it. But because of what Jesus did on the cross for you, you were able to receive that, and now eternity is yours forever. And so, friends, you can see here that James has the positive result in mind when it comes to our trials. But if you have ever endured a trial, you know that that's not always the case. That sometimes when we face trials, things get really difficult and we are tempted to fall away from God. So point number two this morning, your greatest enemy is you. Your greatest enemy is you. See, James seems like he switches subjects, which goes from one subject to a completely different one. Trials and temptations. But what I want you to see this morning is that these things actually go hand in hand. That we know that God does allow trials in our life. That these trials that he allows in our life are meant for our good to strengthen our faith. But with every trial though, there's also a temptation there to sin or to disbelieve him. And so the question then is, where ultimately does your temptation come from? Who's to blame for the temptation that you face? First, I wanna talk about where it does not come from before I talk about where it does. The first place your temptation does not come from is God, according to this passage. You see, James says here that while God may allow the trial in your life, he's not the author of the temptation. And I wanna say that again to make sure you hear it, that God may allow trials in your life, but he is not the author of your temptation. This is a vital distinction for the Christian and for our understanding of where our temptation comes from. And so then we have to look at God's word and say, why is that the case? You see, James says that he's not the author of this because he cannot be tempted by evil. I know many of you would say back to me, but Jake, I know in the Bible that it says that Jesus was tempted. And you're right, in Hebrews it's clear. He was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. So then we have to ask the question, what is James trying to get across here? 
And what it simply means is that God does not desire evil ever. Did you know that? That there's never been a moment that God desired evil for a second. That he's completely good and completely holy. Therefore, it's impossible for him to desire evil. Therefore, if that's true of him, then it's impossible for him to desire evil or sin to come about in those made in his image and likeness. To do that, we go against his nature, which would then make him not God. So God cannot be tempted with evil, and ultimately he cannot bring that about in our life. So friends, God will never allow his people to face a trial with the purpose being to cause them to sin. I can promise you God will not go there with you because that goes against his nature. But what that means though is when we are tempted, we cannot look to God as the source of our temptation. But then I say, where else would you look? So we can go to the opposite side there. Satan. I've heard many people say things, and maybe you've said these before, things like this is my demon or these are my demons. Or maybe you've seen news headlines where people say, the devil made me do it. Or maybe you've said that to try to get out of a difficult situation. We've all heard these things. But when I hear this, I think it's giving the devil way too much credit. And if it's one thing I don't want to do is give him credit. You see, the devil ultimately reveals to us the real source of our temptation when we look at how he operates in our world today. There's one thing you need to know about your heart as a human. And that's that you do not need the devil to turn you towards evil. You don't need his help. You're gonna do it all on your own. Jeremiah 17, nine says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So Satan does not have to drag you along, kicking and screaming into your sin. He's not a puppet moving your hands and your legs. He simply is just gonna let you do what you were gonna do anyway and not show you that there's another way. One of the greatest places that I've seen this in my life is having children. I have two children. My oldest is two. She's beautiful, hilarious, and super sinful. And she's so sinful. But there was a day a few weeks ago where my wife and her were in the living room I'm sure she was watching Bluey or Moana for the hundredth time. And we were sitting there and she loves to take sodas that we have on, on the table in front of us and pick them up, say who it belongs to and put it back down. It's kind of her thing. And so she did that and it's like, oh, that's nice. But then all of a sudden she did something that she's never done before. And so she takes the soda, she picks it up and she kind of stares at my wife I don't know if you've ever had this before. It's like a stare down, just one-on-one. -on -one. She's staring at my wife. And then she gets this smirk. And I don't know how else to describe it. My wife will tell you, it's the scariest thing I've ever seen in my life. It's terrifying. But she got this smirk and she's had the soda in her hand. And my wife's like, Hazel, don't do it. And she's staring at her and she gives that smirk and she just dumps it and she's holding it. And in that moment, I realized how sinful she actually is. Goodness gracious. And by the way, Sarah, you're in this service. I did not teach her that. I didn't, I promise. But what that ultimately shows me, friends, is that I didn't have to teach my daughter to sin. She just does it. 
Why? Because it's something that's a part of her that always will be a part of her. That she has a sinful nature and that sin comes natural to us because we've been sinning from the beginning. We don't have to be pushed into it. We'll naturally find it on our own. Which is why, friends, if you hear nothing else I say this morning, please listen to this. If you wanna meet your greatest enemy, I have a homework assignment for you. Tonight, when you go home, I want you to set your alarm like you do to wake up in the morning. Or for my college students or my high schoolers who are just out of school, it's gonna be like 11 a.m., 12, 1, 3. I know, that's the way it goes. But as soon as you wake up, I want you to go into your bathroom and I want you to turn on the light and I want you to look into that mirror, as scary as that can be first thing in the morning. And I want you to look at who's looking back at you because that is your greatest enemy. It is not God looking back at you. It is not Satan looking back at you and it's no one else. It's you, that you are your greatest enemy. You are the one that is tempted by your own desires. And this desire, James tells us, has a very unwanted consequence. You see, James here uses the analogy of giving birth when talking about how sin infiltrates our lives. Notice what he says, that when you are tempted and you give in, it gives birth to sin. And when you continue to sin and you don't repent, it gives way to more and more sin. And it gets worse and darker to the point where you may completely neglect Jesus, where you may never repent, which leads to an unrepentant life, which leads you to standing before Jesus with nothing but your sinfulness. And friend, if you stand before Jesus with nothing but your sinfulness, the only thing that awaits for you is eternal death. It's eternal suffering. And you have no one to blame. That you can't on that day blame God. You can't look at God and say, God, how dare you do this to me? You can't blame Satan. You can't blame anybody else but yourself because you are the ultimate source of your sin. And so friends, James puts it best here. Don't be deceived. And I love when God puts that in his word because he knows what my heart wants to do, right? He knows that I wanna be deceived on this, that I wanna believe that it's somebody else's fault. But friends, don't be deceived. Your boss at work is not forcing you to sin. That inflation is not forcing you to sin. The government is not forcing you to sin. Kids, your parents are not forcing you to sin. Parents, your kids are not forcing you to sin. Satan is not forcing you to sin. God is not forcing you to sin. You sin because your hearts are darkened and you're enticed by your own desires. And so ultimately what we have to do is to stop blaming others. We have to stop with this blame game and look at ourselves and realize that the only solution for our wicked heart, the only solution for the sickness that is inside of us is the blood of Jesus. But ultimately, I'm so thankful that this passage doesn't just leave us at our inability to do anything good, but it gives us the hope that we have in the gospel of Jesus. So point number three this morning, every good and perfect gift comes from above. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. See, James here gives us the comfort for those that follow Jesus. He tells us that if we do not believe that God tempts us, if we understand that we are our greatest enemy and that we need to deal with our sin now and not later, if we understand that any temptation that comes into our life that God will give us a way out of, because his word is clear, 
and that we do not have to give in to sin in that moment, then what James says here in this moment is every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Can I just be real with you for a minute? It's hard to believe that sometimes, especially when you're in the midst of a trial. You see, most of us, if you're sane, don't go into a trial giving high fives going, woo, yes, exactly what I wanted to go through this week or this month or this year. You're not typically excited. It's more like the great aunt at Christmas who, instead of getting you a Starbucks gift card, gives you a wool sweater. It's kind of the way that we treat trials as gifts in our life. It's the gift we don't really want. We wish God would have given us just another gift. But friends, luckily, God does not leave us without a guarantee on any gift he gives us. That every single gift that God gives into your life, he promises that it will be good if it comes from him. And this means that whatever trial that you're going through right now, I don't care how painful it may be, there's two truths that you need to hold on to. The first is that this trial has not come into your life before first passing through the hands of your almighty loving God. That your father knows, he's not blindsided by it. He knows what's happening in your life. He knows the trial that you're going through. But second, God's word is also clear that although this may be painful, It has been placed in your life to strengthen your faith and that God will work through it, that he will use it. Therefore, I trust the God who gives us perfect gifts, even if right now I may not see it as a gift. Remember, friends, the God that you serve. See, James says it right here. He says that God does not change, that there's no variation or shadow due to change in our God. Hebrews 13, eight tells us the same thing. It tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And can we just stop for a moment and marvel at that statement? Marvel at the fact that you serve a God who never changes, that he is constant, that he's unchanging and he's stable. Although a lot of the times in my life, I am unstable and I'm constantly changing. And friends, this is how all of life is. And I bring this up frequently when I'm counseling teenagers that I found in my almost decade of student ministry that in teenagers, it seems especially like everything in your life is changing, especially middle school. I always tell our middle schoolers, if you can make it through middle school, you can make it through anything. But ultimately, we see change happening in their life. That parents, you know that emotions are high and opinions are strong with teenagers. But what I see outside of just the emotions and the strong opinions is somebody on the inside who's terrified. I've run into this over and over again with students that on the outside, they may even appear to be okay, but I know they're struggling because they say, this is changing about my life and my parents are struggling and my grades are struggling or I don't know who's my friend this day and who's my friend this day. I don't know what the future holds for me. And their body is changing and their mind's starting to change and they're starting to think through things about Jesus. And they just wanna know what is the thing that's gonna be steady in my life because nothing feels steady anymore. And for me, every single time, I'll take them to this verse. I'll say, friend, what you have to understand is that there is a God out there that although everything in your life may feel like it's constantly changing, there's a God out there who never will and he never will change that this is the same God and he will be the same God with you as a sixth grader that he is with you as a senior 
that he is with you after you graduate college, when you're 30 with two kids, when you're 50, when you retire, and the day you die, he will be the same exact God because he doesn't change. He's the God who will never leave you, never forsake you, that he will walk through all of life with you because he is God with us. And friends, this morning, don't miss out that the same is true for you. That even if nothing else, that this morning you are in this room and God has persevered you to this point to be in this room, to hear from his word, that he never changes, that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And God just looks at us and he says, trust us, trust that I'm working, trust that I'm working for all things for your good. And this God rescued you from sin and death by the power of his gospel through his son, Jesus. And that's where this passage ends. It ends with the ultimate hope, which is that we become first fruits, which if you don't know what that term first fruits means, it means new birth. And so when we look at how God has redeemed us, that we are the first fruits of God's redeeming plan, that we are redeemed people, that we are made new in Jesus. But there's a day coming when Jesus will make all things new. Heaven and earth will be made new. All kings, all peoples will bow before him as Lord. But what this verse tells us is that right now, we get to experience the new life of Christ by being a new creation. And we get to be a small part of what God is about to do when he makes all things new. It's just an appetizer to that meal that's coming. But friends, notice that that's you. If you are in Jesus, that's who you are. That you are a first fruits of what's to come. And ultimately this leads us into eternity to experience the love of Jesus in person forever. Friends, this morning, I want to remind you that the bad news is that you are your greatest enemy. But the good news is that Jesus came to die for your greatest enemy, that he took your place on the cross. And therefore, when you're tempted, do not say it's God. Do not say it's Satan. Do not say it's anybody else. Say that it's you, that it's me, that I'm the one who sinned. I'm the one who's fallen short of the glory of God. Remember your sinfulness. Remember what Jesus has rescued you from. And friends, then refuse to give in to the temptation by the power of the Holy Spirit and ask God to teach you in your trials. Ultimately, we look to eternity and we see what awaits for us. You see that we get to go into an eternity where Jesus will be our king where all of these trials are done and we can worship him forever. So therefore we glorify our king here and now by becoming immovable. When a trial comes into your life, you no longer look at it as something that is outside of you, that's dark and there's no purpose, but you will look at trials in your life through the lens of the gospel. And like Spurgeon said, you'll kiss that wave that throws you into the rock of ages because that's the best place you can be. Couple application points this morning. First, always have eternity in mind. Always have eternity in mind. Even over the past couple of years, I've noticed that it is easy for me to forget about the eternity that awaits for us because of our present circumstances. But friends, constantly remind yourself of the hope of the gospel, that there's a day coming where Jesus will reign over everything forever and that we get to be with him for all of eternity. Remember that eternity is coming. 
Second, remember God's faithfulness in the past. Remember God's faithfulness in the past. Don't forget how God brought you to this moment. Sometimes in my life, the thing that God uses to remind me is things that he's done in the past. They said, Jake, I know that you will be, or he says, I know that you will be faithful in this moment because you've been faithful in the past. And so I can say, I trust you, Jesus, in that moment. Remember that God has been faithful to you in the past. Third, face the real source of your temptation. Ultimately, your temptation is not in anything else. It's not in Satan. It's not in God. It's not anything outside of you. It's inside of you. And you have to deal with the sin that rests inside of you. Fourth, trust the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Friends, the good news in a changing world is that God never changes and that he's gonna be the same God today that he will be for your whole life. So you can trust that he will not move and he will not change. And lastly, if you're new in Christ, live like it. If you're new in Christ, live like it. The tragedy of today would be to walk out of this room and simply say, Jake, that was a great lesson and sermon and never apply it to your life. That to be a first fruit that he talks about in this passage means that we will be people who apply this, who go into the world and show that we belong to Jesus and encourage the world that there's a day coming where he will be king. So repent now and become a follower of his so that you can be a first fruit as well. But if you're new in Jesus, live like it.